So welcome again, everyone. Hi. So this is uh, the clinical updates in COVID-19 webinar. Thank you for joining us live from social media. This is the new normal, okay? We are bro broadcasting today the Zoom meeting simultaneously on four social media platforms. Uh, we've got the YouTube channel, Periscope TV, Twitter, and Facebook. Okay, this is some housekeeping announcements. Number one is CPD points. I'd just like to remind all healthcare providers and allied health personnel, including research officers, you can get CPD points for attending this live webinar. So do fill up the online attendance via this uh, cutt.ly backslash COVID CPD2 as shown on the screen. I can't see it on my screen. It's supposed to be on the screen, so shared earlier, and also on our usual social media account. So at the end of this session, there is a Q&A. So please, could you please type your questions uh, in the Slido apps? And the popular upvoted questions will appear at the top of the list, yeah? We will try to address as many questions as possible. So how to use Slido? We will show you during the Q&A session. So bear with us. Uh, as for slides and notes after the session, following this seminar, the presenter slide, a summary of the panel discussion and the Q&A will be made available on all of our social media platforms, which is Twitter and Facebook, and of course, our NIH website. Uh, the other one is actually video and podcast. If you would like to rewatch this session, you can go to our YouTube channel and the podcast version, which is only uh, in audio. And it is available on major podcast pro platforms such as uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, etc. So the objective for today's webinar is to share the clinical experience with hydroxychloroquine for short and long-term use. So I repeat this again, for today's webinar, it is to share the clinical experience with hydroxychloroquine for short and long-term use in COVID-19. The panelists for this week, we are indeed fortunate to have with us Dato Dr. Gan Sok Chin. I don't know, is Dato Gan, uh, Dato Gan there? Okay, she's waving. Okay, she's there. She's the senior consultant physician and rheumatologist in, in Hospital Tuanku Jafas Remban Negris Milan. So the second panelist for today's uh, webinar is Dr. Chia Wee Kui. Do we have Dr. Chia there? Okay, I can see you there. Okay, Dr. Chia Wee Kui is uh, the geriatrician and he's also the head of the uh, Department of Medicine and Clinical Research Center in Hospital Taipei in para okay last but not least our third present uh, presenter today the panelist for this week as well is dr yasmin muhammad ghani is dr yasmin there i can see your name there but uh, your video is not there yet i presume you're there you can't yeah she can't wave to us yeah dr. Oh, yasmin. Dr. Uh, yasmin is on the way sorry okay dr yasmin is on the way okay we wait for her i mean she's actually going to present uh the last uh, presentation for today. 
So Dr. Yasmin is actually uh, a consultant uh, infectious disease physician in Hospital Sungai Bulo, our ground zero uh, COVID hospital. So the agenda for this week, uh, the first webinar will be uh, presented by Dr. Chia Wee Kui, and the topic of the presentation will be hydroxychloroquine treatment of COVID-19 and its short-term usage effect in corrected QT interval, QTC. So without further ado, can uh, Dr. Chia Wee Kui please present your webinar to the audience? Thank you. Okay, Liquid, um, looks like there's some connection problem. Can we then get uh, Dr. Hishamja, maybe Dr. Gan to speak first because their connection is better. We will fix with uh, typing and then we come back to you. Um, shall we quit? Is that okay? Sure, sure, sure no problem. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Hishamja, we connection problem. Kita minta Dr. Gan speak first. Okay, there's some technical issue there. There's some connection problem from typing. So, so with that, can we move on to the next uh, lecture webinar from Dr. Dr. Gan Sukchin from Hospital Tuanku Jaffa. Uh, Dr. Gan, are you, are you ready with your presentation? Are you there? You, can you see my slides? Can you see your slides? Okay, we can hear you as well. Okay, good afternoon everyone. Yeah, thank you Dr. Go for inviting me here to talk about I don't see Kuroquin's uh, this afternoon. I thought uh, Dr. Chia's uh, presentation first were actually uh, better to paste uh, on me as a second uh, speaker. Anyway, um, due to technical issue, I will just uh, share basically um, my experience uh, as a rheumatologist of using our first love uh, medication that is hydroxychloroquine for last 20 years. So I have nothing to disclose. Hydroxychloroquine uh, usually, I think, are more often uh, recognized as uh, HCQ. Yes, and it is an uh, essential or cornerstone of medical treatment for all, all the patients with SLE, including when the SLE patients are pregnant. So once the patients are diagnosed to have SLE, the first thing we tell them is that they have to be on this medication, on this medication for life, that long for life. And it's not just for one year, two years, but for life until we tell them not to take or until or unless there is a clear contraindications, we cannot give them these medications. So it is also, we use it for other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and all other CTD conditions but they are not the mainstay of treatment. The mainstay of treatment, the only medication for SLE is HCQ. Okay, not steroids, but HCQ. Because HCQ has shown to increase survival in lupus patients. And we say it has 10 benefits, you know, to give to lupus patients. Among them are reduce any lupus flare, including the skin flare, the joint flare, the CNS flare and as well as uh, lupus nephritis. While they are on these medications, the, the flare incidence will be reduced and also it prevents organ damage including cardiovascular effect. Therefore, any withdrawal of HCQ from our SLE patients for as short as two weeks, even in those with previously clinically stable disease, 
associated with flag. So that is very important for HCQ in SLE. But I'm not here to uh, teach you how to treat SLE, okay? So as far as we are concerned, in uh, MOH, there are two preparations of uh, HCQ. One on the, on the left, the white colored tablet, white box here, is the innovator drug called Pegguineo. And the other one on my right side, which is yellow color, uh, the tablet is yellow in color, and it's a generic drug called Uniquin. For all this one, we only use Pegguineo to treat our patients until March last year. Somehow, uh, there's a generic drug called this Uniquin has managed to get into the tender. And we have actually never heard of this generic before. It is from Bangladesh. And uh, no friends in uh, surrounding Southeast Asia has actually any experience in using this Uniquin. Therefore, even though it is, I think, about uh, 10 cents, or five cents cheaper than Pegwineo. Um, so the, the MOH, uh, they are very kind, they listened to us and they didn't award all the tender to Unicream, but they give 50% to Pegwineo and 50% to Unicream. With the condition that we actually monitor the effectiveness of Unicream, whether it's as good as uh, Pegwineo. By the way, Pegwineo in uh, MOH is very cheap. It's only 61 cents per tablet. So, with that tender of 50-50% to Pegwineo and Uniqueen, the we have come out with a guideline where all existing patients, our SLE patients who are on Pegwineo will continue to own the innovator drug. Whereas, um, those patients like rheumatoid arthritis, the, the HCQ is not the anchoring drug for this disease. We move them to Uniquin. We also do a small study to look at all SLE patients who are already in remission on a pregranial to move them to Uniquin to see whether they will continue in remission or they develop any side effects. So, so far, we have been using these uh, generic medications for a year, about a year, and there are new, uh, quite a number of uh, reported uh, AE while we move patients to Uniquin, like patients with uh, lupus who are in remission once on move to Uniquin, they relapse. And also, they develop some side effects, which uh, when when they were on Pegwineo, they do not have that. So that's the reason when uh, COVID-19 patients were asked to put on um, hydroxychloroquine as a treatment, we rheumatologists getting very excited. You know, the treatment was just for five days and we want the COVID-19 patients to get the best medication and therefore we insist that maybe just five days of medication, they should be on the uh, innovator drugs, which has been tested uh, for so for half a century, rather than use the generic medications. So if if we give a cost of uh, pegranil of uh, to COVID nineteen patients follow the guideline, 
12 tablets, it only costs about 7 ringgit 32 cents, I think, which is affordable. So the dosage that you we use in patients with uh, SLE is 200 to 400 milligram daily as a single dose or 200, uh, two divided doses, i.e. 200 milligram daily. To be taken with food to cut down the GI side effect and the tablet have to swallow the whole tablet. Uh, you're not supposed to crush the tablet. And the dose, the guideline is not more than five milligram per kg per day using patient's actual body weight or with maximum dose of 400 milligram, whichever is lower. The caution with patient with renal failure, um, we will only change those if the patient has uh, renal failure. There are very few data to talk about the pharmacokinetics of uh, HCQ. In fact, uh, in Malaysia, there's no place where we can send for the HCQ level in the serums. So if, the, if our patients have renal failure, when the GFR is less than 10, then we serve uh, hydroxychloroquine 200 milligram every other day. Uh, by the way, hydroxychloroquine is not stylizable. So in, in, this is the latest guideline by the MOH that I got on the 3rd of April, that was uh, last Friday, where the suggested dose of hydroxychloroquine is 400 milligram BD for one day, followed by 200 milligram BD for five days. These are really very short-term usage of uh, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and uh, in pregnancy, it's not contraindicated. We give to our pregnant lady, and here is also using the same dose. And now the latest also mentioned that patient with sari or pneumonia before waiting for the COVID-19 uh, test to come back also need to start to give patients with hydroxychloroquine. So we will see the usage of uh, HCQ will search and increase uh, in our country. In the guideline mentioned the contraindication in HCQ is known allergy to the drugs. So in that sense, um, I think there's no contraindication here because all these patients have not tested to give uh, trigonal or hydroxychloroquine to them. The cautions of this QTC of more than 500, um, I think is, is very, very rare. Um, patients with myasthenia gravis, we have been given them uh, because it's part of the autoimmune disease where our patients with SLE with uh, myasthenia gravis, they are on hydroxychloroquine. So far, we do not really see much problem. Ophiria is rare. Retina pathology, uh, just for five days, I think there's no issue. Epilepsy for five days, I don't see any issue as well. So, how about short-term side effect? I've been asking all my other rheumatologist friends to ask them whether they observe any uh, side effect uh, just giving patients for about a week of uh, hydroxychloroquine. In fact, we have to think very hard I think rarely our patients get any side effect from this. Maybe some may get rash after a week or two. And uh, majority, I think the commonest one may be some GI upset with a bit of nausea. Some can get diarrhea. But if you take 
the medication with food and in divided doses, you can cut down this side effect. I can't think of any other side effect after giving only for five days. Long-term side effect, I think it's not applicable here because we only give it for five, but I know some give it for 10 days and some do give it up to two weeks. So the much worry issue is prolongations of QDC and uh, arrhythmia risk. Again, the duration of uh, usage here is very short, only five to 10 days. And if you look at the benefits, it is always the risk. When I do a search for this uh, HCQ coughing long QT, they are, uh, data show that because of HCQ show inhibition of all these IKR inhibitors, they will result in very mild, very mild QT prolongations, not prolongations up to 500 uh, milliseconds like uh, mentioned before. And if you look at uh, all the WHO uh, AE surveillance data, and we know that we have uh, several hundred million doses of this uh, chloroquine has been used worldwide. So far, I think there is no report on the arrhythmia death uh, under WHO. Uh, no death due to arrhythmia because of long QT by taking hydroxychloroquine. So how about ECG? Are we supposed to do an ECG before starting patient on hydroxychloroquine? We don't. We never do any ECG before starting uh, our patients on hydroxychloroquine. The indication of ECG may be for other, other reasons, okay? But for COVID-19, maybe the conditions, uh, circumstances is a bit different because if you are on another uh, QT prolongation drugs, you may consider ECG. I checked through uh, the these are academic of cardiologists uh, America. They come up with this uh, risk scoring you know, for drugs associated with QTC prolongations. So you may want to do a risk scoring if you put patients on more than one um, one drugs which cause uh, QTC prolongations. And the maximum risk score here is 21. And if the patients have low risk, less than six points, I don't think you need to do an ECG. Maybe moderate and high risk, you will consider to do an ECG for them. How about retinal toxicity? Okay, retinal toxicity is only occur when you use the dose more than five milligrams per kg actual body weight for more than five years. So five days, ten days here, I think this is not an issue at all. And also, we will not do a baseline fundus checking by ourselves. But usually, we will do the baseline fundus checking by ourselves. And subsequently, you can send to ophthalmologist a year later or according to recommendation, five years later to look at the risk. So in COVID-19, of five to ten days of medication, retinal toxicity is out of question here. How about DCHPD? The, if you look at the product insert, they may mention a caution in patients with DCHPD deficiency due to the potential of hemolytic uh, hemolysis, but they are actually very limited data. There's a study done uh, looking at 11 patients identified to have DCHPD deficiency 
and they were given hydroxychloroquine for more than 700 months. And with that, there's no incidence of hemolysis. So therefore, our guideline, uh, US guideline, Europe's guideline, did not mention that you need to do the G6PD level prior to starting of the medication. We don't do G6PD here. Okay, next. Is there any role for post-exposure or prophylaxis? I think this one has so much discussion over the last few days, uh, including my doctor who has some exposures uh, running to me, wanting to take the hydroxychloroquine. I think this one for the ID team to answer, and I will not discuss this. And how about prophylaxis? Is there any role taking uh, as, uh, this uh, hydroxychloroquine as a prophylaxis? So in that case, all our SLE patients who have been taking uh, hydroxychloroquine should have protected right against uh, uh, COVID-19. But so far, with uh, 4,119 um, patients who have COVID-19 in Malaysia, uh, there are five SLE patients who has this uh, disease. I will just uh, present two cases for these uh, two patients. Patient number one, she's a 46-year-old Chinese lady who was diagnosed to have SLE in 2012. So she has eight years of taking hydroxychloroquine and her disease was stable. By the way, she was an ex-smoker, uh, still vaping now on uh, ARB and she was obese. Okay, so if you look at the chronology, she has history of contact uh, with COVID-19 patients on 12 to 14 March. And on the 17 March, heard that this contact was, uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19. She went to the hospital, but the ETD turned her down because she has no symptoms. So she went home. Unfortunately, a day later, she started to develop symptoms, but did not seek any treatment until 10 days later. It was a bit too late when admitted to the hospital uh, as a sari, and they continued her pregnant at a usual dose of her sulfasalazine and satan treat as pneumonia. And a day later, she was intubated and passed away quickly on the 30th March. And after she passed away, the COVID-19 results came back was positive. So she was just treated like any other pneumonia. And there was an x-ray and um, that's what happened to her. Our case too is another 50-year-old lady. She has SLE 13 years ago. So she has been on hydroxychloroquine for 13 years. The disease uh, is quite stable. In January, she was only taking tagwinyl, uh, hydroxychloroquine 200 mg daily with azathioprine 25. She was not on steroids. So her problem is she has intermittent fever with uh, lymph adenopathy for a month. Many of our SLE patients do have this. But on 27 March, suddenly she developed this high-grade fever. A bit of cough on the 30th and then admitted on the 31st March. She denied any history of contact and until now they can't find any contact, history, uh, personal contact, uh, can't find this contact. So in the hospital, 
because she developed a little bit of this pneumonia, they checked for COVID-19 and turned out to be positive. So at the moment, uh, this patient is well uh, in the ward and uh, she was diagnosed to in the clinical stage 3B and uh, giving Caletra, HCQ and also start on steroids. So our third case, I will not present in full. She has history of uh, travel history, stable SLE on hydroxychloroquine for 12 years, presented to the hospital for autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Because of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, they metaprep her. After metaprep for three doses, two days later, she developed fever. And because of fever of, and a little bit of pneumonia, COVID-19 was checked and found to be positive. Okay, so she was then add on Caletra, changed to um, hydrocord, and she was actually doing well, discharged home with uh, her old treatment, hydroxychloroquine, and add on prednisolone. The case four was a case uh, who has contact uh, on Taiwanel for 14 years, presented with a bit of UITI symptoms and a bit of fever. Because of the contact, she was tested uh, positive and add on Caletra for her. She was not on given steroids. She's now home well. Our fifth case has history of Trevor. She has other comorbidity like hypertension, diabetes, and on ACE inhibitor. Has been on hydroxychloroquine for 20 years. And also baseline, she's on 10 milligrams of prednisolone. She came in pretty ill and was intubated, uh, given Caletra add-on interferon on IV hydrocord. And now she was uh, extubated, doing fairly well in the ward with nasal prong oxygen. So these are the five cases of our SLE patient who has been on Pagwinal ranging from 8 years up to 20 years and uh, they still get this COVID-19 infection. So we need to think whether prophylactic treatment uh, is useful or not. I really can't tell from just these five cases. But anyway, the rheumatologists in the world, we have a registry and any cases we collect, we will put in the registry and hope to get more info from there uh, later on. I was also asked, are we very concerned uh, now of shortage of uh, hydroxychloroquine? Yes, indeed, we are. Uh, with the usage suddenly surge, and we are actually very worried, you know, whether our patients are going to get uh, enough caguanio uh, or not for our lupus patients. Otherwise, our patients are going to get flare and so on. So I think with a very good track records of us being using technology in this country. I do have a word with the Innovator Drugs uh, Company and uh, I hope they can uh, surprise us with enough of medication. And at the moment, the stock that we have probably we can, uh, if based on giving just uh, 42222 medications according to the guideline, five days of hydroxychloroquine for all our COVID-19 patients, including the SARI patient and so on, 
we will probably have enough to treat about a quarter million of the patients, the stock that we have. So I think with that, I hope the infections can be controlled and it will not also uh, use up the stock for us to treat our, our SLE patients. Okay, so we will also at the same time continue to take good care of our SLE patients. Finally, I'd like to thank to my colleagues from this three hospital who actually uh, supply me the information of uh, the cases that I presented. With that, I thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Dr. Uh, Gan Sukchin. I wish I could clap the hand, I mean, yeah, show of appreciation. So uh, we need to move on. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, can we have uh, the webinar to be presented by Dr. Chia Wee Kui. Uh, are you okay over in Seremban? Okay, I mean, since there's still some problem with Seremban, can we move on to the last, supposedly last webinar of the uh, afternoon? Uh, we have Dr. Yasmin Mohammed Ghani from Hospital Sungai Buloh, Ground Zero. Uh, Dr. Yasmin is going to actually present the clinical experience in treating larger group of COVID-19 patients with hydroxychloroquine. So without further ado, over to you, Dr. Yasmin. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Okay, so uh, thanks for giving us this opportunity um, on, uh, uh, during this webinar. Um, so a few disclaimers, standard disclaimers, um, and the most important disclaimers is, uh, I think uh, as of now, there's actually no currently recommended effective antiviral therapy so I'm in no way, um, uh, I'm sure everybody will share my, uh, my thoughts as well. Uh, advocating hydroxychloroquine is the treatment for COVID. Uh, we probably still need a much larger trial like the WHO solidary trial in order for us to make that uh, assumption. So a little bit about how we classify the cases, um, how we actually um, classify our cases. So uh, when I talk about categories, this is what I mean. So uh, we tend to classify our cases this way. The reason is because it gives us, uh, um, um, it gives us, uh, it categorizes our cases as well as risk stratify our cases so that we know which are the patients that may have a higher risk of deteriorating. Category four patients are patients with pneumonia that are requiring oxygen and category five um, patients sorry, are patients Sorry, Dr. Yasmin, I think your slides have went off. You need to share again. Okay, it, it comes back. Can you see? Yes. Okay. So these are the way we actually classify our cases so that we can risk stratify the patients. So category one right up to category five. Category one are generally asymptomatic cases. Two and three are, uh, two are basically patients who have no pneumonia but come in with mild symptoms. Category three are patients who, who have pneumonia that don't require any oxygen. Four are those who require oxygen and category five are critically more ill patients, generally in ICU care. As of um, uh, 7th of April, uh, 2020, uh, we have about uh, 455 patients who are admitted to the hospital, uh, the main building. So category one, uh, we have about, majority of them are basically category one patients, 72%, uh, 73% of them are category one. We've got about 16 to 17% category two, 
uh, about 7% category 3, and category 4 are 6%, and category 5 are 2%. And average admissions over the past one month into our ICU are ranges about 2 to 3% of our admissions basically go into ICU. And this is basically a, a treatment timeline as the disease evolved, as the epidemic evolved, the pandemic evolved. Uh, we sort of uh, uh, improved and changed our treatment sometimes within days as more evidence or anecdotal evidence uh, became, uh, became about. So initially, we thought Kalitra uh, protease inhibitor was actually a wonder drug. And, uh, and uh, we, we, we threw in uh, category uh, four patients, those who require oxygen. Uh, many of them were given uh, monotherapy with Kalitra. Soon after, we realized that we should be preventing patients to go on to uh, uh, category four. So we started uh, looking at evidence uh, uh, in, of chloroquine, uh, anti-malarials in the use of uh, COVID-19, especially from China. And we started to uh, start patients who have um, uh, fever and they had symptoms of pneumonia, signs of pneumonia, but they did not require oxygen yet. And we started giving chloroquine in this category of patients. Um, soon after we realized mm, not everybody like that progresses, they still started to progress a bit more. And uh, in early March, uh, we, we started a more sequential addition of medicines, right? And as they uh, as they um, uh, deteriorated more and more, we started uh, adding in more drugs. So drugs like Kalitra uh, came in, drugs like interferons came in, and, and still we were not treating those with mild ones yet. And soon after, we realized, oh, wait a minute, you know, we probably should be preventing people from getting pneumonia and, and, and going on to and, and going up in the category. So we decided from the 15th of March, all our category two patients will start getting hydroxychloroquine. Um, the reason why we switched from chloroquine to hydroxychloroquine is we saw that uh, our, our, our pharmacists were, were, were sort of convinced us that um, the interaction between Kalitra and hydroxychloroquine was far more in causing prolonged QT and it was a bit less in hydroxychloroquine. And thus we started, we shifted on to hydroxychloroquine and some of more evidence also, uh, more anecdotal evidence also came out with uh, HIPTQ. And, uh, and uh, uh, our rheumatology colleagues had been using hydroxychloroquine for a very long time. So we were a bit more, uh, we, were, we were brave, uh, braver a bit uh, in using hydroxychloroquine. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, standard of care, uh, current standard of care for category three and critically ill patients. And um, uh, on the 22nd of March, um, uh, category three, so all, all, hydroxy, all uh, category two patients started getting uh, hydroxychloroquine and, um, and uh, we started experimenting about removing Kalitra in certain category three patients who had no risk factors. And uh, soon after we started, um, we started um, uh, recognizing the, the, the pattern of uh, uh, cytokine release syndrome in certain patients and, uh, and started, uh, started experimenting with aptlizumab. Uh, that's wrong, isn't it? It's toxilizumab. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, we, but we started giving it late, so we, we suspected it when patients went into shock, presented with a multi-organ failure and stuff. And after a while, um, on the 26th of March, uh, we uh, started thinking that, um, you know, because after the NEGM paper that came out that said that um, Kalitra did not really make a difference um, in, in patients uh, uh, with severe disease, uh, we, we shifted 
uh, after the Thai study, we shifted a little bit uh, to uh, some patients over to Atazana Bay. Rest of them got a current standard of care. And currently, um, uh, uh, most category of patients, we're continuing with our standard of care and considering early steroids and toxilizumab when patients deteriorate earlier before the multi-organ failure sets in. So this is how the timeline of treatment that we were uh, that has been progressing for the past uh, month and a half now. So, and then um, this is a very simple, quick analysis that uh, on my insistence, insistence uh, uh, my, my statistician started helping me. So uh, we looked um, about 207 patients uh, from the 25th of March. So if you go back to the timeline, you know from this time, all my category two patients above would be on some form of uh, combination therapy or monotherapy with hydroxychloroquine, all right? So we filled up, we had about 103 patients were actually started on HQ. On admission, 36 were category two, 10 were category three, nine were category four, and five were category five patients. And uh, I know this doesn't add up to 103 because hydroxychloroquine or a combination therapy would probably would have been started much later. Right, uh, not on presentation. They just looked at, at presentation. So the demographic data of the patients who actually got HCQ, um, um, yeah, forty-three percent males. Uh, sorry, forty-three percent females, fifty-seven percent males. Uh, a majority were, were were of Malay origin. Twelve uh, percent Chinese. We had some foreigners as well. Mean age group: males were about forty-one, females about forty-six. Uh, none of them were statistically significant. Now, we also looked at uh, uh, probably a lot has to be improved and teased out some more from this chi-spread analysis, but we looked at patients who are on antivirals who are not on antivirals. Now, we already know those who are not on antivirals were very, very stable patients, right? We were very stable patients. So nothing significant here. Uh, you're on antiviral and not antiviral, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Majority of them, there's there's no clinical significance between them. There's not much difference between them. But we were more interested uh, looking at the 10% that actually worsened who were on antivirals. Of course, many of them were either on combination antivirals, would have been more sick and stuff. Uh, but we wanted to look at uh, uh, the 10% who actually worsened on hydroxychloroquine. And uh, we did a sort of like a a survey uh, uh, of all the patients in the in the in the in the main ward, the main building. So we had about uh, 300 patients, 357 patients on that day in the main building, and uh, we looked at uh, eight. Uh, we looked at them and and saw all category four and five patients. How many of them presented with at a much lower category, at category two onwards, right? So when we looked at that, we saw that two patients, eight uh, eight. Category two patients, so eight patients actually progressed to category four and five, so about 1.7% of them. And 14% of them were actually wrongly classified at presentation, so they're actually at a higher category when they actually came in, but probably, you know, it was a more junior doctor who looked at the chest x-ray or not examined properly, or, 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 or uh, uh, it was just loosely labeled as category two, and uh, but 14% of them were wrongly classified at presentation, and about 98% of them actually had comorbidities. 17 patients of category three, the category three means those with pneumonia that not require oxygen progress to a much higher category, and 60% of them actually had comorbidities. And uh, on top of that, we also looked at 39 patients on, on hydroxychloroquine-based combination therapy and looked at the incidence of prolonged QT. Prolonged QT at this point was actually defined as more than 0 .4, 450 uh, microseconds. So 15% of them 
developed QT prolongation, either on combination Kalitra or hydroxychloroquine or both, or, or interferons or both. Of those who developed QT prolongation, 50% of them were on triple therapy. Um, average six days it took for someone to actually develop QT prolonged uh, in, a, in a regimen containing Kalitra. And, uh, and um, the only thing that was statistically significant is those who were uh, of advanced age, age more than 60, and comorbidities were the risk of developing prolonged QT. That's all. Thank you very much for the uh, uh, presenting this latest evidence, and thanks to your team and CRC team in Sungai Bulu that provide the latest uh, information on patient hydroxychloroquine, so we can have some discussion later. Now we come back to Dr. Chia Wee-Kui. Um, by the way, Dr. Hisham Shah has to leave uh, the webinar to attend to other important meetings. So Wee-Kui, uh, continue your please. I think you may want to start again. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so I'll start again. Um, okay, so let's start again. Okay, so sorry for all the technical uh, glitch. So hydroxychloroquine treatment in COVID-19 and short-term usage in the effect in QTC trend. So as I mentioned just now, uh, a very important point is that just to, for everyone to realize hydroxychloroquine is not a magic bullet. Uh, there are several reasons to that. One is that the data we have currently are very thin, not, they are not very strong uh, clinical data. And uh, most of our patients, uh, we're talking about those are asymptomatic, a lot of them will recover by themselves. So it's not uh, reasonable to give them the risk of hydroxychloroquine if the category one asymptomatic patients uh, may actually recover by themselves. And the other important thing uh, for us to realize is that the usage of hydroxychloroquine is uh, an off-label usage innovation. And uh, yeah, so these are the two components of my talk. I will talk about the background of hydroxychloroquine treatment in COVID-19, how it came about, and the QTC trend uh, sharing of hospital typing uh, experience. So uh, it started off with some evidence that, you know, this uh, remdesivir and chloroquine had an effect on the growth of SARS-CoV-2 virus. And these are the virus that caused COVID-19. But these are in vitro studies, and we know that in vitro studies, the dose are very high. Uh, the effect you see in vitro are not necessarily uh, replicable in human. Uh, there were some early uh, data presented by the, uh, the Chinese uh, patient on chloroquine effect, but again, these are not very strong evidence. Okay, so you'll be asking what's the difference between chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. You can see the structure here, the only difference is the addition of this hydroxyl group. But just because of this addition of hydroxyl group, basically it has better clinical profile than chloroquine, as uh, stated by Dr. Yasmin just now. It allows higher daily dose uh, and a fewer concerns about drug to drug to interaction. But I need to highlight here fewer is relative. Hydroxychloroquine is still a medication with many side effects, uh, sorry, many drug interactions. I give you a few examples here. If a patient is on digoxin and you start hydroxychloroquine, you may increase the digoxin level in the body. If the patient is on oral hypoglycemic agent because they're diabetics, giving hydroxychloroquine increases the risk of hypoglycemia. So these are our profile of patients. They have more comorbidities, they are older. So this you have to take into consideration before considering hydroxychloroquine. So uh, this basically is a study from France, and this is the one that uh, sort of I 
spark more interest in usage of hydroxy chloroquine. Uh, but let's look at the, uh, the the population that they look at. They are hospitalized patients. They are not outpatients. If they have uh, symptoms of any clinical status, they can be mild, moderate, pneumonia, higher, uh, higher than our national uh, guideline. And they added on azithromycin with the intent bacterial super infection. Their comparator comes from two sites. From their own hospital are the patients who refuse the treatment. And from other centers are those who are not using hydrocyclopine uh, as I mentioned. And the outcome here, again, need to highlight is that they are looking at biological clearance. They are not looking at the ICU admission and also uh, long-term survival. And this is what they show. If you see the black, is, uh, the black line, the rate is the dose receiving hydroxychloroquine. Field tested force. Yeah, I think weekly, uh, we your quality of voice is not so clear. We have to think of a way. Is it okay if I give you a call? Uh, it's better. Maybe continue first. Uh, now it's better. So I repeat again the black line is control, rate is uh, those on hydroxychloroquine. So this is what basically created a lot of enthusiasm in hydroxychloroquine. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. We will control the slide for you. Yeah, you can continue. Okay, so you can hear me now? We can hear you. Okay, so, so this is the slide showing that if you add on hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, then it shows here that the clearance is faster. Again, again, I'm stressing that these are not clinical uh, outcome. They are not ICU emission uh, survival uh, benefit. They are uh, virus, viral clearance. Next slide. Okay, so if you look at the... Okay, so if you look at this, uh, there are many clinical trials that have been registered in the clinicaltrial.gov. Up to seventh uh, April, there are fifty-four trials. Majority of them are not recruiting yet because it's a relatively new. Uh, so, so uh, thirty-nine are not recruiting yet. Fourteen is recruiting, and one has completed. Okay, so the data is coming, and we don't have to wait for a year or a year and a half because these are uh, medication in the market. So we just have to wait and and see whether it is uh, in terms of safety and efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. So this is the one that's completed. This is a Shanghai study. Uh, it is not yet published. It basically, again, look at hospitalized patients, those age 18 and above. They use hydroxychloroquine 400 milligram for five days. So these are very similar to our national guide. Conventional is the uh, comparator. And the outcome here, they do look at mortality. So we are looking forward for their formal publication. Uh, this is uh, what is available, completed hydroxychloroquine treatment. So you have heard of this before. So our Malaysian guide is divided into two. One is for COVID-19 patient confirmed patient. And the second guideline is for those uh, sorry to rule out COVID-19. So for COVID-19, category two and above, start hydroxychloroquine, category three with warning sign, other agents added. And to, uh, for sorry to rule out COVID-19, those is similar. Uh, but you start it if there are evidence that this could be viral in origin. You can get the uh, clues by looking at the blood counts, the lymphocyte counts, as well as the X-ray. But what we definitely uh, that is absent in terms of evidence are usage of hydroxychloroquine in the following uh, group of people: the healthcare worker, whether pre or post exposure, 
contacts, close contacts of a confirmed case, COVID-19 confirmed outpatient. Okay, these are outpatient. We do not know the safety of uh, usage of hydroxychloroquine used without monitoring. And COVID-19 confirmed asymptomatic. So hydroxychloroquine usage in COVID-19 in consideration is a bit different from the rheumatology uh, experience. Is that, that the patient that receive uh, hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19 are generally older. They have more cardiovascular comorbidities, may have more medications already on uh, for their cardiovascular condition. The usage here is shorter, so retinal complication may be lower in terms of uh, usage in COVID-19. And the magnitude of the benefit may only be justifiable uh, com uh, if you compare the risk or benefit if you give it to patients who need at least admission and not generally to every patient that is uh, confirmed COVID without symptoms. Okay, and of course, uh, if, you, if you think about virus clearance, it may reduce health resource utilization if you could discharge the patient earlier to community. The uh, effect of this hydroxychloroquine, which is the, mainly the QTC prolongation. So basically, drug, uh, when you talk about drug-associated tosadipoa, this is basically a type of ventricular arrhythmia, and this is the one that we worry. But we can only measure QTC as a surrogate marker. The risk of tosadipoa is not linear function to QTC duration, nor the extent of the change, but that's the best we have and therefore we will measure QT for drug safety. So you have seen this from uh, Dr. Gan's uh, slide earlier. There are ways you can risk uh, stratify if they are older, if they are female, if they are on flucermide, look like diuretics, if they are admission QTC or already prolonged, if you are starting more than one medication that may prolong QTC, all this will increase risk of QTC during your hospitalized uh, in the patient's hospitalized state. So I'm going to share with you a uh, typing uh, experience. We only so far have 10 patients because our site just started in 23rd, uh, on 23rd March 2020. And if you can see here, generally they are older patients. The oldest we have and uh, is 91 years old. Uh, then you can see the gender. Uh, almost all, except for two, they have comorbidities. And if you look at the QTC baseline, it's around 480, 500, and 400 and above, majority of them. Uh, what we did is for those who are higher risk, uh, instead of giving 400 milligrams instead, we give 200 milligrams instead. And, uh, and look at the outcome, patient number two, we discontinue the uh, hydroxychloroquine after third day, and I will distract with, uh, on this patient later. Next slide. So this is the graph that you will see. And uh, just to point to you, uh, the patient number six, the orange color, you can see that the starting QTC is actually just about 400 plus. But just uh, a single dose, you can appreciate the increment of QTC up to almost 480 and subsequently to 500. And this is gen the 91-year-old, uh, and these are in the case that we have actually reduced the dose. So, so uh, in certain patients, I think ECG monitoring is required, especially in treatment of COVID-19 patients. Uh, those who started off with 500 uh, millisecond QTC, the, the, they are increased in QTC as well, significant increase because they have already started off 
on the higher baseline. Okay, next slide. So I'll just share some practical tips is that, you know, not every patient should get hydroxychloroquine. You need a proper diagnosis. If it's bacterial, if you have other alternative diagnosis, think of other medication, other treatment. Uh, before you start hydroxychloroquine, discontinue and avoid all other non-critical QT prolonging medications. These are, for example, our typical anti-warmic medication, metrocopromide, uh, loratidine, and azithromycin, uh, I put a star there. You need to decide whether you want to add on or not, depending on your patient's profile. And if you're going to give uh, antacid or uh, proton pump inhibitor, remember to space it out at least four hours because it can reduce the absorption of this uh, hydroxychloroquine. And the baseline ECG and some of the basic blood tests is necessary for the higher risk group of patients. And these are general contraindications. If you already started off with 500 milliseconds, then probably the patient should not be started on hydroxychloroquine. And if uh, consider reduction of the dose in cases of extreme age, uh, example in our patient, as well as uh, if they are QPC to start off with, it's already 500 milliseconds uh, instead of 400 milligrams there. And the ongoing uh, monitoring, dose adjustment, and drug discontinuation, ECG daily should be done for people who are high risk. And if the QTC remains above 60 milliseconds or absolute QTC above 500 milliseconds, you need to re-evaluate back the risk and benefit of ongoing therapy. And if the risk is higher, please discontinue hydroxychloroquine. So I'm going to share two cases. Uh, once. Okay, so, so uh, to just show uh, on the when hydroxychloroquine is, uh, shouldn't be started, for example, a 62-year-old and stational failure presented with fever dyspnea for three days. White cell total white is raised. The LC is lowish, but the platelet is normal. And remember, absolute lymphocyte can be a marker for many things. One of it are malnourishment. Uh, so it may not be necessary viral if you just look at one single parameter. The X-rays are very localized. There are pleural effusion, and we know pleural effusion is one negative predictor of COVID X-ray changes. The QTC is already very high to start off with. Uh, the swab was taken for COVID, uh, sorry, not COVID-19, COVID uh, but in, in this case, because it is more suggestive of uh, bacterial, tazosin and azithromycin was started. Okay? Because if you look at the risk factor, QTC above 450, uh, two, uh, two medications that can prolong uh, QTC all increases the risk of QTC prolongation. So that this patient, the uh, results came back as negative, the patient recovered with antibiotics. So you need a diagnosis. It's not for every patient. Next slide. So the case two is where hydroxychloroquine was discontinued. A 54-year-old end-stage renal failure, repeat, this repeating, IHD presented with starring history of attending Kanduri, the swab confirmed COVID-19 infection on presentation category 3A means that the patient has pneumonia changes, doesn't need oxygen yet, no fever. The QTC, 500 milliseconds at baseline, also very high to start off with. So in this case, we started just 200 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine instead of the 400 step dose. And in this case, azithromycin was not added. On day three, the QTC increases to 537 milliseconds. ALC is already increasing in trend. Patient was asymptomatic. The risk of a benefit uh, rate, uh, 
was reviewed again, and the risk to continue on hydroxychloroquine here will be more than the benefit. Therefore, hydroxychloroquine was stopped. The subsequent therapy shows a reducing trend, and patient was discharged at day 15. Well, next slide. So I just want to show it's not a very clear slide, but I think you can see uh, this is a, a form that we use for all our uh, COVID or SARI patient that you may consider if, if KTM uh, agrees with this and can use it in hospital. For the milder patient, it's basically uh, on the table, you can see that there are category, blood pressure, heart rate, uh, the oxygenation, the warning sign, the x-ray, fever, lethargy, the absolute lymphocyte count. This basically gives you some features of warning signs so they can keep track of the patient's progress. It gives you also uh, the baseline QTC to remind you uh, that certain patients may not be safe on hydroxychloroquine. So this is what we use in Taiping Hospital uh, to monitor our patients uh, who are COVID positive or QI under investigation. So that's all I have for sharing with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vikui. Uh, so now we, we have a presentation from all the three speakers. As you can see, these are all experience, it's clinical experience from years of practice like Dr. Dr. Gan in SLE, low dose hydroxychloroquine. And we, we have only five patients uh, sharing on the uh, ECG and Yasmin certainly have more. So as I want to say, this is their clinical experience. We do welcome uh, 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 questions. Meantime, uh, Yasmin, uh, looking at uh, your experience in Sungai Buloh, where, where you treat more uh, pay, COVID patient with hydroxychloroquine and compared to weekly. Do you have any comment on weekly's presentation? Um, yes, yeah, I do. I do see a proportion of patients where hydroxychloroquine is probably not indicated as well. These are patients, although they have presence of pneumonia, but the standard biomarkers that we use to predict a severe disease. Um, even if they do have uh, controlled uh, comorbidities, uh, sometimes the biomarkers are actually not uh, high. So uh, traditionally, we'll use things like CRP, absolute lymphocyte count, uh, uh, and of course, uh, clinical progression of the disease as well. And sometimes we do use right, um, in order to uh, uh, risk classify a patient and see whether they are going to uh, progress or not. So um, I do see in a proportion of patients uh, where hydroxychloroquine may not add any extra benefit. Uh, so that's what I'm saying that um, uh, in no way are we advocating, uh, we are, we're not sure if it works or not. All right. Um, the, um, uh, this is not uh, backed up with any data also, but compared to the first wave and the second wave, of, when we did start hydroxychloroquine very early, we do see that we are sending patients uh, less often uh, to, to ICU. That's the only um, remark that I'll probably use. But yes, uh, there are a proportion of patients. I don't think it's going to add any extra benefit. So th thank you. <clears throat> Gan, any uh, feedback on the presentation? Yeah, sorry. If not, uh, now we, we shall read out the questions uh, for the, the three speakers. The first question is Yasmin. Uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah, is there any experience uh, using HCQ with BioZinc? Uh, no, <laughs> no, we don't. Uh, um, no, no, we don't. Okay, understand. So, uh, answer is no. So, Dr. Chair, there's a question about the risk of hydroxychloroquine azithromycin. Uh, are oh. you still with us? Uh, okay, can, can you hear me? Okay. Okay, uh, so again, it is basically, if you talk about hydroxychloroquine and the in, uh, lack of 
data azithromycin is even uh, lower in terms of the, the category of evidence based so so any in my opinion any usage of azithromycin should be for let's say you add it on for bacterial pneumonia that you're suspecting and you need to make sure that the baseline qtc are not high in the first place yeah okay understand that so you have another question to chat about the uh those hydroxychloroquine in sari uh, okay, the question is, uh, what do you think about the method of giving stat dose in Sari while waiting for results? Okay, this, this so, so uh, because there's, uh, in certain centers there are delay in the results, in the turnover time, uh, there is uh, a sort of uh, our advice that uh, we should maybe start uh, hydroxychloroquine earlier in suspected patients. But again, uh, we need to discuss with the ID team some, uh, if they're going to start because it has side effects. And unless it is very suspicious, I, I need to caution the, the general use of hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, Yasmin, do you want to add on to this question about giving stat dose of hydroxychloroquine in Sari while waiting for the result? Um, sometimes we do tell um, um, our colleagues uh, from the other hospitals. Uh, who refer to as sari cases, especially if it's very highly indicative of uh, of uh, uh, viral pneumonia, uh, especially of COVID. Of course, the most important thing is to have an alternative diagnosis. So send off as many samples for influenza, uh, more diagnostic samples for influenza, and not just always think about uh, a COVID all the time. But we do um, uh, recommend if there's no contraindications to actually start something like hydroxychloroquine first before, uh, while awaiting the, the, the COVID result. Um, I've never just said uh, a stat dose of hydroxychloroquine and then wait for the result to, to come up because sometimes the turnover of result is, does take about 24 to 48 hours for it to come back. So if it's very highly suggestive and we don't have an alternative diagnosis, we have resorted uh, uh, to starting something first uh, while waiting for the result to come up. Okay. Um, but it's effective or not, I don't know. Yes. Okay, there's a, a question about uh, renal adjustment for patient with renal, renal condition. Renal condition, do you have adjusted dose for hydroxychloroquine in patient requiring dialysis? Yasmin? Um, I actually this was uh, this was a question I actually wanted to ask Dr. Dr. Gan. Um, uh, the initially we were not dose adjusting uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, but later we looked at uh, one of the um, uh, books uh, on uh, on uh, renal adjustment dose uh, for dialysis, and they did recommend uh, to use a lower dose of hydroxychloroquine. Um, but uh, I'm just wondering, um, uh, I'm just one, uh, but so now we do, we do those adjusted and uh, we give it every other day, I think. Uh, but um, I, I'm, I'm actually hoping to hear from Dr. Gan and see whether do they renal adjust, uh, because we use it for a very acute period, whereas they yeah. use this a lot more chronic. So I'm just wondering yeah. in your comments. We, we do, we do. I have a slide on that. Uh, for poppy, for five-day usage, you probably need to adjust only for those in end-stage renal failure. Mm. 
other than that, um, probably just five days with that dose, I think is okay. To me, I think it's okay. Because the renal excretion of hydroxychloroquine is about 15 to 25%. Mm -hmm. So until the EGFR less than 10, um, mm -hmm. then we down to every other day after the dialysis. That's what the dose we give to the patients. So I also look out in this in COVID, but there's no uh, clear in in our American College of Rheumatology's uh, suggestions. They do say um, the loading dose you still give, and then subsequently you if patients on the GFR is between um, thirty to to ten, you can uh, give daily dose instead of daily dose. Mm. And then, if on dialysis, maybe you give every other day. Mm. Okay, clear. Uh, so, so, a question again about the use of. Uh, oh, now they, they, this supplement and uh, on, on another issue about vitamin C and zinc for both doctors who treat COVID patients. Do you add this adjunct? No, sorry, we don't. We don't start. I know there's some data on on vitamin supplements uh, on uh, uh, on uh, COVID uh, therapy, but uh, I don't think it's any robust data. So at the moment, no, we are not adapting it yet. Okay. Next question about empirical treatment of patients. We are waiting for result, but the question is whether we add hydroxychloroquine and Calitra together. Yasmin. No, no. Um, I. I don't dare put on putting on a PI uh, with patients. I generally we say we start uh, hydroxychloroquine first, lah. Um, confirmed cases, right? Not patient with confirmed cases. Yeah, yeah. But they, but some of my uh, colleagues have started both together, especially if it's very very typical presentation and very high risk. Um, we we recently actually found uh, one of our patients that we thought was COVID-19 was actually PCP with retroviral disease. So there's always that risk, you know? Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. yeah. Do not rush into that. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, maybe we could talk about the atrial fibrillation, uh, how to <clears throat> interpret the QTC in the world. Uh, don't have any experience in patients with atrial fibrillation and, and QTC. Again, I think it's, it's a matter of weighing the risk and the benefits. If the patient is mild, asymptomatic, uh, and you have already a patient with underlying cardiac disease, I think you need to be careful before adding uh, possible arrhythmogenic medication on board. And just to add on uh, to the, 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 the part where the usage of uh, hydroxychloroquine in terms of end-stage renal failure patient, I, I think giving short-term may not be a problem, but the people who prescribe it must understand that hydroxychloroquine stays on in the body for a few uh, weeks, it can go up to months. So if you're intending to reinitiate medication with QTC prolongation, for example, Dijoxin and, and other uh, concomitant medication, uh, be careful of adding that after you have completed and off the hydroxychloroquine from your chart because it stays in the body. Okay, so so yeah, thanks thanks for clarification and addition. Next is about people with liver function uh, abnormality. Will you still start with hydroxychloroquine? And if abnormal liver function, at what cut of level for ALT? Okay. 
Uh, Yasmin, maybe uh, you have more patients. Maybe you have baseline liver function test done, right, for your patients? Yeah, we have baseline liver function tests done, but uh, um, um, maybe again, Dr. Gan is better answering this question rather than me. We don't see much uh, liver enzymes uh, going up, but we do see mild derangements uh, since it's very short uh, duration. Uh, uh, we don't, um, uh, uh, we just finish off the five to 10 day course and then stop it actually. Um, but I know there's a contra that there's a relative contraindication for chronic liver disease patients, right? So at the moment we don't, but maybe Dr. Gan can comment. I, I think there's a caution on patients with uh, liver disease. If the liver function is the range, at least maybe three times above the upper normal range, I would actually take it off because as we know, it is not foolproof right that this is the bullet, uh, magic bullet. More so, uh, you actually add on some kind of hydroxychloroquine with Caletra. Both can cause hepatitis to the patient. If the patient's liver are deranged, I will actually just withhold the medication. You don't see hydroxychloroquine cause hepatitis by just a five days uh, cost of the medication. But I understand many people out there they are using at a longer period of time. Um, not everybody follow guidelines. Some use it for 10 days. I also know people use it for 14 days. Uh, some with liver derangements, but they just continue using it. So I think this is our caution. If we want to use the drug at a longer duration of time, we need to really look at it. Once there's a liver impairment, just off it. Okay, uh, the next question is about the, how to serve the medication of those patients who intubated since they cannot crush the hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Yasmin? Well, my, um, actually, I just sneakily asked my pharmacist. We do crush them. <laughs> we do uh, crush them uh, in ICU and uh, uh, give hydroxychloroquine. So just to add on, uh, I, I, the evidence, you can look at a guide from the Liverpool University. Uh, and it, in Calitra, I'm sorry, in, in uh, COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine can be used, crush, uh, if needed. Uh, is, you can find it in Liverpool University, right? Okay, in so... Station it, COVID vision. Mm. Yep. Okay, next question, but Yasmin, <laughs> about this antiviral treatment, should we remove them from this current treatment guideline? <laughs> As a doctor, I think uh, all of us want something to give for fever. We give paracetamol, you know, for common cold, we give periton sometimes. So um, um, we all want something to give uh, for, for a disease. So at the moment, uh, I suppose uh, the solidarity trial in WHO would actually help to answer this question in a major way. And uh, until then, um, um, I suppose, uh, I don't know whether it's having a placebo effect or not. But uh, it does, uh, we, we, we at the moment uh, are still giving. Uh. Yeah, okay, thank you. So the question about children and adolescents, you, you have, uh, I think you have younger group uh, children. Yeah, um, no, my pediatrics uh, do not uh, give uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine much because majority of them are, are quite, uh, I don't take care of pediatrics patients, but uh, we've had this discussion before, but they have very, very mild disease or some, a majority of them are asymptomatic. So, um, no, they don't give. 
older kids uh, 14 above 18 adolescent uh, like I said, uh, many of them are, are, are category one or very mild category two patients. Yeah. So we have started maybe very short duration and the more uh, uh, teenagers, but um, uh, I know my peeps uh, generally they just observe them. They don't start. Them. Yes, right. That's right. Okay. Last week we have a pediatrician that talked about COVID-19. That's about this uh, steroid antiviral. This, I think they are doing some study, uh, going to do some study on more critically ill patients, but do you add steroid? Right, um, uh, so, sorry, go ahead. I think you probably have more. Oh, sorry. Um, we, are, we are starting to recognize in the second phase of illness, a majority of the um, uh, pathophysiology that leads to extensive lung damage uh, could be due to this thing called cytokine release syndrome line, you know? So uh, used in a, in, a, in a low dose and short duration, we think steroids may have some beneficial effect, especially if given early. Um, of course, to answer this question uh, uh, accurately, I think uh, um, I think many people are designing a trial um, and that will help us answer these questions. But we do see quite a bit of uh, um, uh, benefit in adding steroids at the right moment, especially when the patients tend to develop uh, like a SERS kind of uh, 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 deterioration in the second week of illness. Um, and that's when majority of them do deteriorate. So yeah, we are starting to see the benefit of a low dose steroids during that. Yeah, I would think more studies are needed to, to provide evidence. Yeah? Yeah. So anybody trial. else have the, the feedback on this steroid? I think uh, no more. Okay, next we go on to the next question about antiviral like lopinavir, ritonavir, and others. Uh, do we still prescribe them, uh, Yasmin? Maybe? Um, uh, we don't have remdesivir. Um, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, we're still using in a select category of patients. Um, um, those intubated ones, uh, we try to keep them still on Kalitra sometimes because um, uh, we can't, um, the other protease inhibitor that some of us use, uh, Atazanabe, and um, that has had some Thai data behind it uh, uh, saying that it can bind to the virus better. But however, um, uh, when you give it together with protease inhibitors, it tends to reduce its, its, uh, its, uh, its uh, efficacy. So we tend to use still sometimes Kalitra. But again, you know, all this, whether it works or not, it has to be done. It, um, the answer will come later, I suppose. Uh, Tocilizumab, uh, we do. Um, um, I, I, I told you about the cytokine release syndrome. Uh, we do use Tocilizumab attenuate uh, uh, CRS uh, effect of the virus as well. Uh, yeah, we do use in certain selective patients, especially the ICU ones. Yeah, so I, I think for the audience, for the uh, person who asked the question, we don't have uh, access to it, then this yet, and the other medicine, I think uh, they will be, once we enroll in some screenshot trial, we will have access to this medicine. Yeah, so now about other than 
hydroxychloroquine, do we consider other uh, DMARDs? Oh, no. <laughs> no question. Yeah. Oh, this disease is so new. Yeah. We, we may not have. I, I see also other than solidarity trial, there's a recovery trial in NHS UK. I don't see uh, this combination as a treatment options. Yeah. So maybe more evidence will come in later. Uh, can we go on to the next question? Do you think steroid in the inhaled form can prevent the progression of disease in the severe? A patient? Um, I haven't, um, sorry, um, limited experience, never done it before, but I know um, the China uh, guidelines did talk about inhaled interferons, I think. Uh, they used it um, to treat uh, severe ARDS pneumonias, uh, uh, but other than that, I haven't seen any reports on inhaled uh, uh, steroids. Uh, okay, yeah, as I said, so many things are new here. Um, next question. Any experience in ribavirin? Um, we did use uh, ribavirin in certain patients, uh, but um, it required a huge, um, uh, a very big loading dose, and uh, we did see quite a bit of uh, cytopenias with ribavirin. So at the moment, uh, we don't use much remembering. Okay, thanks. So about hydroxychloroquine, uh, uh, because of its half-life, is the suggestion about giving it as daily dose rather than divided dose to reduce the nursing burden to enter into the room to serve the patient. Dr. Gan, you have any question about dividing the dose? No, no, no issue at all. We are giving it at a dividing dose. If the patient needs to be on 400 milligrams, they can either take 400 milligram daily or 200 milligram BD. So, Yasmin, the, our guideline, um, treatment guideline, we put 200 milligram BD. If I may add, uh, uh, I think in certain conditions you can give daily dose, but the worry here is the peak. Hydroxychloroquine is very well absorbed, very high bioavailability, and the peak is about three hours. So, so sometimes giving a higher dose, you, just a bit of that peak that may cause problem. Uh, other than that, I, 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 there was one of our patients that they, they gave 400 milligram daily because he was having delirium and that was a bit difficult in giving it at divided doses. Understand, yeah. So, uh, how so Gan said there's no problem in giving in the SLE patient. I suppose in the treating COVID, it's a bit different, yeah? And Yasmin, you, you, you have any feedback on this? No, no, no. It's fine. Um, I think they are both feedback carries uh, bigger than mine. Okay. okay. About timing of uh, administration of this immune immunomodulators drugs such as steroid is very important. The person asked, the steroid may be helpful to prevent progression to severe disease. Any opinion in this suggestion? Yeah, so uh, that's what um, uh, I think I covered this question before earlier. So we are, try we, are, we are seeing that the deterioration at the second week of illness may actually not be due to viral uh, effect itself but it could be due to viral, uh, it could be due to an immunological 
uh, uh, activation that uh, that uh, was created by the disease. So we, there, I think there are, uh, there are valuable reports that tell you that cytokine release syndrome may be the reason for the lung damage that actually happens in the later part of the disease. So that's where we think uh, uh, immunomodulators should be started early at the point of early deterioration rather than later. Uh, yes, please. the next question is really about this uh, RVD, uh, sorry, the, the, the ALC level. Is ALC level an indication to start calendra? No, no. Um, um, disease as a whole, taking disease as a whole. Um, um, you, you have to remember, uh, I think uh, uh, Dr. Chia brought this up, uh, ALC level can be low in many uh, conditions, right? Uh, even in bacterial pneumonia, you absolutely site count. If you start looking at it, will be low, right? So uh, um, if the we do start uh, empirical anti-inflammatory uh, agent, uh, antiviral agents, if we suspect uh, a severe COVID infection, like in any sari, uh, so just going by an ALC is not an indication to start anything. You need to take the whole disease as a whole before you decide to start empirical treatment. Patient at stage one to prevent them from getting, but now we say asymptomatic, we don't usually start. Uh, the question is, should we start so that prevent them from progressing? Uh, Yasmin? Yeah, sorry. Uh, new role of treating stage one to prevent them from deteriorating. Um, at the moment, we are not doing it, but I suppose this is uh, uh, whatever whatever uh, uh, whatever study that's out there that people are planning i suppose this should be done uh, in a at, at a study level you know rather than just doing it without anybody collecting yeah. any data so i think we that's also, much more important yeah we also have limited resources right yeah. and we don't want to take away from SLA patient right gun so we should be uh, yeah. based on evidence yeah Next yeah, question is also for you. Do you see myocarditis among the patients you treated in Sungai Buloh? We have. Uh, uh, we have seen myocarditis in certain patients. Okay, so it yeah. can be quite severe. Yep. Okay, careful. Um, maybe because you talk about, maybe you're going to start talking about this steroid delay viral clearance. Your, your slide has some viral clearance thing. Any uh, feedback on this? Quickly, unmute yourself. Okay, sorry. So, so uh, I think what Dr. Yasmin has yes, mentioned. Steroid delay viral clearance. Yeah, I think the the what Dr. Yasmin has mentioned just now is they are using it to try to uh, reduce the risk of the cytokine storm. Uh, but there are some uh, evidence that it may delay viral clearance. So it is a it's a basically risk or benefit. You you can't get everything. On your side, you just have to decide. Give it, give it at the right timing. It is a weapon. Give it at the wrong timing. It is it's a disaster. Yeah, just be very careful on using that. Again, uh, can you talk about dermatology side effect of hydroxychloroquine? I, I think it's just a little bit of, a bit of rash here and there. We have never seen to the extent of uh, erythroderma rash. No. Okay. Good. Good. Hydroxychloroquine is supposed to give. For patients with rash, malar rash, any cutaneous rash, discoid lupus, and so on. Mm. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, mechanism of action. <laughs> Shall we quickly talk about mechanism of action? 
the 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 hard answer is no one knows how it's going to act but there are several uh thing that we know for example hydroxychloroquine increases the acidity of this lysosomal uh, structure uh, but in in covid-19 the virus enter the body not through lysosomal process lysosome is basically a bag of uh, of a, a bag within the cell which basically uh, the virus trick the bag to receive the virus into the cell but in covid-19 the entrance is through the spikes of the virus Enter. So, so there's a discrepancy between how hydroxychloroquine is known to work and how is it working in COVID-19. So the short answer is no one knows uh, the mechanism of action. Yeah, thank, thank you. Yasmin, the next question about warning signs uh, and, and other parameters that we should be before we add Caletra. Uh, no, um, I think we are starting to see that a sequential addition. Again, now there's no uh, approved treatment. I think this should be emphasized. Uh, 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 so we don't really know if uh, Kalitra, and I think there is an NAGM article out there that actually said that um, um, uh, there's not much benefit seen um, in, in severe cases, right? So, um, but one thing's for sure, a sequential addition of uh, drugs um, uh, is probably not uh, going to be much beneficial. So, we, when we start, com uh, a better way of putting it is when we start combination therapy, we start at a patient who already have uh, evidence of pneumonia. Again, whether this approach prevents patients from going on to a uh, higher uh, category of disease, uh, we don't know. It has to be, hopefully, we are collecting data and hopefully we will get the answers soon. Um, but what I think uh, we need to recognize is a lot of patients who deteriorate do uh, uh, more and more uh, uh, have the CRS syndrome, right? So the recognition of a cytokine release syndrome, uh, we should concentrate more on those patients because these are the patients who end up being in ICU. Uh, so I think that's much more important. Yes, yes. So close observation. Next question to Yasmin also about this SARI. Because out there, many other physicians are treating patients with SARI. Do you still label them if they are clear-cut bacterial pneumonia with high neutrophil count and low pneumonia? COVID-positive. Right. <laughs> so, um, important to recognize viral pneumonia um, uh, from so normal uh, white cell count or low white cell count disease with um, um, all those uh, with evidence of a low absolute lymphocyte count. Um, this is, I think, much more important to recognize those patients. Um, I see a lot of patients. Uh, uh, being screened um, uh, post uh, uh, VAPs and all that, uh, I suppose. I think uh, um, Penang Hospital, uh, some hospitals have had quite a few uh, SARI screening that came back as negative. So I think it's more important to uh, uh, diagnose viral pneumonia, la, so a normal low white cell count a disease with uh, interstitial uh, uh, ground glass appearance on CT. Um, but um, to say the least, I think the Radiological Society uh, also has defined various degree of, uh, of uh, 
uh, COVID-19. So a more severe COVID-19 can also have distinct consolidations, right? So they can also present with this consolidation, although they are more periphery. And, um, and uh, some of them can look like bacterial pneumonia as well, right? And when you have uh, CRS syndrome, sometimes and if they come in late, sometimes the white cell count goes up. So um, yeah, so you need to study the, the case as a whole. So it's difficult for me to say yes and no for this, uh, for this uh, question. Maybe um, based on this question, I would like to ask Jasmine uh, Chow. So we use chest X-ray after the patient has been confirmed to have COVID-19. Um, there are researchers now looking into chest X-ray appearance of COVID-19 and see whether it can be it can be helpful in uh, making diagnosis when resources are scarce in uh, doing the screening test. So what's the experience in, in seeing you? You must have done many, many chest X-ray for patients in Sungai and we, what, what's your opinion about using chest X-ray? We use only chest X-ray to screen patients with uh, COVID pneumonia. And we do see uh, a typical, it normally starts as a bilateral uh, haziness, uh, uh, haziness and then it spreads in a more periphery fashion. Um, I think that has been uh, clearly described even in WHO um, as well as even in China also sees a similar thing as well. So yeah, we do use only chest x-ray as a screening tool. That's good. Uh, the, your radiologist is uh, planning for a study on chest x-ray appearance of COVID-19. Yes. That's good. And then later we have more information about chest x-ray. Can, can, can I just add on, on the chest x-ray? It depends mm -hmm. on which uh, setting that uh, the audience is in. Sometimes uh, the x-ray that's visualized uh, that's visible to the physician may not be clear uh, as clear as the one that's in the, con the, the radiology uh, working desk. Okay, so, so sometimes, uh, for example, typing hospital, all our SARI and uh, COVID patients with the understanding from our radiology would have a formal reporting, especially when it's not clear because early changes, bilateral ground glass, if the, if the penetration are not adequate, you, you may miss it. Uh, and we have several that you know uh, my doctor think there's no pneumonia but actually there was so yeah. the quality may be different it's just because we have yeah especially you're doing portable chest x-ray isn't it yeah quality may not be as good yeah. you understand that okay let's move on to next question about in critically ill category 5 covid patient how long would the galetra or hydroxychloroquine be continued yasmin maybe you have more such Some. patients Sometimes uh, we, we tend to treat it for five to 10 days. Lah. Anything more than that, uh, we are not sure whether it will be beneficial or not. Yeah. So it's still pending for our research, the clinical trial that has to be done soon. Um, polar effusion. Patient with polar effusion, were you able to rule out COVID without swab? Clinical diagnosis. Uh, maybe Yasmin again? We haven't seen much plural effusions. Um, and even our radiologist, uh, uh, based on the British and American classification, plural effusion doesn't come into um, um, COVID-19 infection. So, um, yeah, so we haven't seen much uh, plural effusion in COVID-19. Yeah. Vicky, I saw in your x-ray, you mentioned something about plural effusion. Can you elaborate that? On to Dr. Yasmin. So, per se, COVID-19 don't cause uh, so much of plural effusion. 
again, we need to be careful of people with comorbidities that may have already got diffusion from start So the, the statement there is if there's diffusion, you don't need to swap. I would again say and then, uh, assess the patient as a whole. Right. Don't just assess the x-ray and the sign. Yeah, okay. Thanks for your clarification. Yeah. Since we have limited number of test kits, should we prioritize testing for more new patients other than the retesting those already confirmed? <laughs> yes, yes, it's a guideline for you on when to test again, isn't it? Just and the, the latest uh, uh, guidelines actually tell you we test only at day 13, so, so we don't yes, do you go nearer to your mic. Sorry, I think there's uh, national guidelines that tell you when to retest patients to see whether they're clearance or not. It's twice to say 13 days, the first and then 13, 13 days. Yeah, day 13, one test, one we test. We need to day. do that in order to discharge them safely to yeah. the community. Correct. In so, so China, those discharge, they still ask them to stay at home for 14 days after clearance. Yeah, so be quick. Uh, again, uh, there, are, there are two points that we have to look at. One is the clinician point of view and the other one is epidemiology point of view. So obviously from clinician point of view, patients well discharged home, uh, that will save the bed stays from hospital. But just like Dr. Go uh, has mentioned, it's for the epidemiological sake that we actually release patient only after the COVID is negative. It's not that you, you, you discharge one patient who's well, you get back another five, six patients of uh, reinfection. Yeah, so and somewhat in figure shading seems to be longer than others. Certainly, I, I read some Chinese publication. So we only do swap, we don't do figure assessment. Yeah, okay. Next question is about hydroxychloroquine again about if patients have other underlying such as cancer, what is the recommended dose? Yeah, Gan, you may have uh, more experience in treating your SRE who may have other conditions like cancer? I think, again, to me, it's not an issue. But you, if it's ongoing chemo, you need to know what chemo and check the drug-drug interaction. Yeah. Drug-drug uh, interaction is essential, so we... we, we yeah, it is available. Otherwise, a five-day course if it's really needed, I don't see issue again. We will treat patients just like any COVID-19 patient. That's right, short duration. If patient with heart failure, uh, should we start hydroxychloroquine antiviral looking that they are higher risk of this interaction? Uh, maybe Bikwi? Okay, so the same uh, answer again. Assess the patient, assess the risk and the benefit. Diuretics, uh, you need to be careful of the potassium, the magnesium, uh, correct it if you have time to correct it before you add on a, a, a medication that can prolong QTC. Uh, think of the ad other additional medication before you add on, uh, whether it's really, really needed or can be delayed. For example, ACE inhibitor in heart failure are not acute treatment. They are used as a long-term medication for heart failure. So at that point, whether you can withhold it for the five days to two weeks, probably before we initiate it. So, so again, if the COVID-19 uh, shows evidence of moderate or progression and you need to give hydroxychloroquine, make it safer for the patient. Yeah, thanks. Uh, next question about 
at what day of illness will the ALC total white count, absolute leukocyte count and total white count drops? LDH become high and CRP is raised. I presume that if taken in too early or wrong timing, the parameters may be normal. So the question, can you guess, can you get at what day? Yeah. This natural progress, uh, Yasmin? They generally, so basically this sums up when the patient starts deteriorating, isn't it? Biochemical markers, these are the biochemical markers sometimes that we use in order to, to uh, detect a patient who is clinically deteriorating. So they can develop uh, deteriorations as early as uh, 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 day five to six, but traditionally it happens in the second week of illness from seven to 10 day onwards. So this is the time that we will observe the patient very closely. Yeah. Next thing is about CTD. I don't know the abbreviation. Uh, the question now. What is the choice of treatment if CTD patient or connective tissue disorder? patient have who are already on hydroxychloroquine and diagnosed with COVID-19. Maybe uh, yeah, yeah, Dr. Gan can talk about it. Yeah, I think I presented the five uh, cases. All of them has been on HCQ regime from eight years to 20 years. Um, I think once the, these patients, once they admitted, the ID physician treat them just the same like any other COVID-19 patient. They still look them with the 400 milligram BB dose of hydroxychloroquine despite they are on 200 milligram daily for that number of years. And then that's it, just treat like any other COVID-19 patients as we do. Yeah, okay, thanks. So that, that has been spoken just now in your presentation. When do we admit study patient into ICU? They are scared that uh, patient may it's not COVID, but uh, when you admit to other ICU, end up with pneumonia. Uh, these are, uh, maybe Yasmin, this is about management. How do you understand the question? Sorry, I'm just re reading the, so it's a PPE question, isn't it? So PPE question, I think uh, uh, KKM just uh, released a, a, a document uh, advising us how to um, how to care for patients uh, uh, in the ward who are either intubated or not intubated and they are, uh, and they are labeled as SARI, right? Um, um, you can look it up. So it's basically, um, they're advocating full PPE from uh, eye cover uh, to eye protection to mask uh, to uh, gown as well as gloves. Um, so I I would just follow and echo what yeah, KKM. Yeah. I think they have, they have revised the guideline, new guidelines. So I think of people out there, if you are treating COVID, uh, I think we must follow up with the newer guideline released by the Ministry of Health. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Next is about <laughs> drugs, antiviral. We uh, are we importing Fevipravil, but I'm not sure. There are only nine hospitals involved in the virtual solidarity trial. And uh, the other drugs, we, we do not have it as yet. The And maybe, Yasmin, you got any news about the other antiviral? Um, I, I think we may be bringing in Fabiprave and that might be used to replace our protease inhibitors. How do you choose between them? Our Fabiprave, um, 
we are importing, I think we are getting some Favipravé and that will probably replace our protease inhibitors. Okay, so the option between choosing Dendesivir and Favipravir? Atazanavé is the protease inhibitor. Remdesivir, I don't know whether we'll ever get it or not. So maybe yeah. we're not going to be spoiled for choice. So it's yeah. probably going to be uh, Favipravé. It may replace us. Okay. Again, you know, it should be done on the trial basis. Okay, maybe I answer the next question. Why only nine hospitals involved? So then the WHO offer Malaysia to be a participating country. Dr. Suresh and Dr. Mahindran actually sent out to all hospitals who have ID. But uh, Suresh also feel that maybe a place where there are at least one, more than one ID physician so that it can be done. You know, this study is a very fast, it's very adaptive design. So we, we want the team. So people who can't quite cope or also number of patients in that particular hospital if it's not enough to be randomized because there are four treatment groups with standard treatment. That's why uh, Suresh compiled and the nine hospital uh, ID from the nine hospital volunteer to take part. So so there's a but after I think after MREC approval, if there are suitable hospital, we, we can uh, request WHO to add on more site if there, there is a, a request from the site. Okay, next question about ACEI for all COVID-19 patients. Should we avoid this um, drug inhibitor? This has been discussed. Uh, Chia Queen, you follow up with this Italian paper. Should we avoid ACEI inhibitor for all COVID-19? Okay, I think just that there are some uh, paper that show that people on ACE inhibitor may be more uh, severe as uh, so those who are on NSAIDs. So the general advice, if you can stop the AIDS inhibitor and there's no pressing need to continue, stop it for a while, let the patient uh, show signs of improvement and restart later. There's, there's uh, nothing much uh, between ACE and hydroxychloroquine. It's basically on the other pathogenesis of this virus. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Minister of Health also have statement this Yasmin, you want to add something? Um, sorry, it was regarding which place? Uh, oh, right. I think America. I think I think there was a, a, a official statement, right? That was actually released by the AHA that says that uh, there's no evidence uh, uh, saying that they can continue uh, ASIN because I know there were some papers, just like Chia said, uh, that uh, suggested a more severe uh, COVID uh, infection. But uh, there was an official statement um, that was released by uh, American Heart Association, I think. Yes. Next question about convalescent plasma. I, I, we saw in the newspaper some of your patients returned and donated their blood. I think yeah. it's from Sungai Bulo. Yasmin, you want to tell us more about We're hopefully going to Hopefully, we'll be able to try this uh, soon. But uh, I think people from probably the best person to answer this are the PDN representatives who are probably not here. But uh, um, they are uh, trying to uh, synthesize convalescent plasma and we're hoping the science behind it is basically using people who have recovered from the infection, if they have enough antibody levels, whether that can be used to treat uh, severe COVID-19 infections. Yeah, it can be a challenge to actually quantify the amount of antibody in the plasma. So there was some discussion with among the virologists and the lab people about quantifying the antibody. Right. So there's still something. I think IMR and, and they're, they're working on this. So we do not have, uh, add, uh, uh, we have not started treatment. So the opinion is that we are uh, exploring the uh, possibility 
So there are some patients came back to, to donate their blood. Uh, last few patients, we are almost time, so we will choose uh, the category 4 and above. Do we need prophylactic anticoagulant, uh, Yasmin? Yeah, my ICU does use it and, um, and uh, we are picking up some uh, patients with uh, significant pulmonary embolism, whether it's due to their, you know, not moving or whether it's due to the disease activity itself or whether it's due to CRS, uh, we're not sure. But um, definitely, um, um, there is a role for prophylactic anticoagulant in more severe uh, patients if there are no contraindications. Yeah, you have any preference of which type? They use Klexin, low molecular weight heparin. Um, we tend to use some uh, uh, heparin in the ward, so there's no mm. preference. Okay, so maybe last uh, few question is about uh, the opinion, the category. Um, what's the opinion about hydroxychloroquine to be prescribed for PEP? We, we have talked, we have spoken about it. Chia uh, Weekly, you spoke about it in your presentation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we just have to wait for the data because the risk is uh, more than the benefit uh, at this point of time. We just have to wait. Not not very long, but just have to wait for the data. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, category five. Do we is what is the compulsion <laughs> to add antiviral in category five? I think we've answered this question before, President. Uh, this is where. Uh, um, obviously, we will add something. The patients come very, very late. We like to add some antivirals on top of it. Um, but um, I think recognition of deterioration, we should always evaluate whether you know, patients deteriorating could be multifactorial, uh, could be due to myocarditis, could be due to CRS. Uh, so we should be uh, evaluating each case as a case-to-case -case basis and then decide why. Uh, whether antivirals uh, add on benefit. But of course, all of us invariably start adding antivirals to very sick patients. Yes. This but whether it's a benefit or not. Um, yeah, we wait for the evidence. Yeah. yeah. So, this question about extubation. This uh, intensivist last week we had that. When do, when do, when is a negative tracheal aspirin? Uh, is it indicate, is it an indication for extubation? For category five patient. Last week, did we talk about this about extubation? Uh, Yasmin, you may have uh, intensivists together with you caring for the category five patients. They, I don't think um, um, the decision to extubate somebody um, is not dependent on whether uh, tracheal aspirate is negative or not. Um, or obviously. Uh, uh, it's not my decision. It, it will be an intensivist-based uh, decision in ICU. But um, it's whether the patient's fit for extubation. Uh, the negative tracheal aspirate is not... I'm assuming that they're asking about COVID-19, isn't it? Uh, whether the COVID-19 is, uh, is cleared or not before to extubate. I don't think my intensivist looks at it. Yeah, if you want any uh, further uh, explanation on this question, you can go to... Uh, to watch a video or the clinical summary of previous week uh, clinical updates yeah i think i think dr shanti had a, yeah Correct. isn't it uh, they had a, the intensivist had a clinical update yeah i'll probably answer your question better yeah any patient that has been reinfected of covid19 in malaysia uh, <laughs> yasmin um um we've um, i i i don't know 
listen, I don't know whether there's any uh, strong evidence uh, um, indicating that a person can get reinfected or not, right? What we think maybe is just intermittent shedding. Now, we had seen some patient turn positive sometimes after reinfection, sorry, after discharge. Uh, but uh, uh, we further studied the virus and it, it actually and tried to culture the virus and it actually uh, was a non-viable virus. So maybe it's more of uh, uh, intermittent prolonged shedding rather than a reinfection. That's uh, right. Yeah. It's what the paper from China also has said. Yeah. That. Uh, okay, we, we do have, uh, we've come to an end. We would like to maybe um, the speakers uh, to summarize uh, what, about what you, the most important message you want to give to your audience. Um, start with Chia Wee You mute. Okay, okay, okay. again, uh, just to again highlight that the data on hydroxychloroquine is not robust. Uh, usage uh, has to be in hospital, not as outpatient at this point of time. And if you're using it, you need to have a, a diagnosis, weigh the benefit and risk before starting the hydroxychloroquine management. Yeah, thank you. Latugan, uh, I, I, Latugan a short summary of your the message. Yeah, uh, to, to me, hydroxychloroquine yes, to rheumatology seems to be a very safe drug. Mm -hmm. uh, not so, we have not seen any patient with long QT. I was uh, surprised to see Wigui's uh, patient, just out of six patients, three has long QT. Whether that is because patients with COVID-19 tend to have a bit of myocarditis or leading to these long QT problems. So, as uh, what Wigui said, I think we have to aware that this is not a magic bullet. Um, shouldn't take these drugs to give you false sense of uh, security, but other measures of prevention is still more important. Like some asking whether we should give it for post uh, contact prophylaxis as PEP treatment. Um, and then also not to simply take the medications to deprive our patients from getting the medication. Yes, yes. Thank you. yeah, thank you. And a uh, few. Words from uh, Yasmin? I think I'm not going to say anything differently from the both of them. Um, uh, I totally agree that uh, antiviral treatment, not just hydroxychloroquine, but antiviral treatment in uh, COVID-19 is still um, um, a questionable thing whether it really works or not. So I think we need a large randomized controlled trial like the upcoming WHO trial in order for us to answer a lot of the questions that's already posted over here. But it's important to recognize that, um, um, that uh, there are other elements that can cause a deterioration in a, in a, in a COVID-19 patients. And we are more and more um, um, are recognizing um, um, CRS as, uh, as, a patho uh, as a pathology in, uh, in deteriorating patients. All right. Um, so that's fine. Okay, thank you very much all the panelists and uh, I'm sure we learned so much about hydroxychloroquine in these two hours and um, many questions answered but also there's this discussion about doing a community trial for those patients who have clinical 
clinical symptoms suggestive of COVID, but the swab has not returned, has not come out, come back. So I think there are further discussion we need uh, after listening to your sharing about how safe it is to give hydroxychloroquine to people at home in the community in the hot zone area. I think this certainly your discussion certainly give very valuable information for the potential investigators planning for this study. So with that, I thank you very much and look forward to seeing all of you who are out there listening to the discussion for next week. And we will have important topics to come up with to discuss about this unprecedented, unknown disease. We still have a lot to, to learn from each other. Thank you very much and have a nice day. Bye.